Hey everyone, I'm Portia Flowers. Hey, and I'm Cynthia Dorsey. And this is Young, Black, and Brave. Young, Black, and Brave is a new podcast, but most importantly, it's a space where we can critically review cinema and discuss the representation of Black women in film. Black women, of course, have had a place in the film industry for some time now, but we want to take a look at it and talk about what that means. When stories are being told, who's included in the storytelling process? Who is centered, who is supporting, and who is erased? These are important conversations to have, particularly as Black women ourselves. We should be able to critique the media that is reflected back to us, and we're gonna try to do just that. It's a new year, new decade, new podcast. We are young, black, and brave. There are a lot of important shifts happening for women in the film industry, and black women should be at the center of these shifts, paid equally and represented authentically. So thank you, Portia, for including me in this discourse. Thank you. Hey everybody, we are back for episode 7 of Young, Black, and Brave. Hey Portia, how are you? Hey Cynthia, how you doing? I'm good. What's going on in film world? Oh, I don't know. Let me see. Well, you know, just the other day, I heard a little bit about our girl Lena Waithe. Mm-hmm. There's a little controversy brewing. <laughs> yes, I heard about it too. So, Lena Waithe recently was accused of stealing a show concept. She has a new mm. show coming out on BET. It's called The Girls' Room, and it stars Melba, Minnie, Thelma, Gloria, and Carlotta. It's a group of high school friends who deal with bullying, social media, body insecurity, and everything high school girls are going through nowadays. And the trailer looks really, really good. I know um, Lena has a lot of other shows coming out on BET. um, And I was really excited about it, but Twitter was in an uproar because an Atlanta screenwriter, Nina Lee, said that she was brought on to write the scripts and produce the content. And um, she submitted the content. And now Lena Waithe has been brought on with to produce the script and the content. And it is her creative work. And she's really upset about that. And she put that out on Twitter. Well, Lena Waithe, had to respond, of course, and she said, um, and I'll just read what Lena said. She said, there has been an accusation floating around that I want to address. In 2019, I partnered with Dove for their project, Girls Room. Prior to my joining the project in 2017, a Dove partner came up with the title and the concept from which my scripts were based. I brought, I was brought on to write the scripts and produce the content. I have never seen Nina Lee's work, nor would I ever steal another artist's work. 
as a fellow creator myself, I can only imagine how she must be feeling. And I look to Dove to give us more clarity on this situation. Now that I'm aware of Nina Lee, I look forward to seeing her art. What do you think? Um, well, it sounds like Lena is saying that she had no idea. And, and really the idea came from, from her perspective, the idea came from Dove and she was just kind of a hired hand just to kind of write the scripts based off of the mm-hmm. concept that was given to her. Um, but she, it sounds like she's also kind of implying that she was duped as well. And so, right. uh, you know, it seems as though Dove really is double dipping. They knew about, they knew about the the story. They knew about the film, I should say. And then uh, they went mm-hmm. to Lena Waithe to try to make it happen. And it just, it sounds very unfortunate. Mm-hmm. I'm really glad that Lena Waithe addressed it. And I'm glad that she wasn't afraid to just kind of put it back to Dove and be like, you know, y'all need to give both of us answers because I'm perplexed, you know, and mm-hmm. I really hate to see that um, another black woman was denied an opportunity um, for, you know, for, for employment mm-hmm. and for credit, mm-hmm. Nina Lee. And, um, you know, I, I just, I'm kind of thinking about a, the bigger picture. Well, I don't know. I guess it's one of the bigger pictures. Lena Waithe has been around for a while, but she's been in the like public eye and the spotlight for just a few years. She's become a household name in just the, the last few years. Mm-hmm. And I wonder about people who kind of blow up and the projects that they may have been involved in or the projects right. that they may have signed on to before they blew up. And now people are kind of latching on to them because they have, mm-hmm. they have a name now. And, uh, you know, so how many, how many times have people maybe done things that they, maybe they didn't vet it properly. Maybe they got into partnership with folks that perhaps on second thought mm-hmm. they shouldn't have, or maybe they just didn't do their due diligence um, and how easy it can be to get caught up in stuff. Cause had Lena Waithe just been Joe Schmo. It, you know, who knows if, if this would have blown up in her face, but because right. she's lean away, she has to be extra, extra, extra careful. It's no longer just Dove stole this story from someone named Nina Lee. It's Lena Waite stole this story from Nina Lee. So she had to be, you know, it's a tough lesson yeah, for her. If, yeah. if what it, if it's actually true, the way that it seems like to me, it's a tough lesson for her to learn as well about, you know, how to move forward um, in Hollywood, understanding the yeah. weight that she carries and the spotlight that's on her. Right. I I was, when I first saw this trailer, I was really excited about it and reading up on it. The girls, the characters' names were named after the Little Rock Nine ladies that um, entered this, you know, the school mm-hmm. in Arkansas, um, a part of like the Ernest Green story. And so I was just like really, really, really excited about it. Lena also has through her company, the Hillman Grad, opportunities for screenwriters of color to submit their work to her directly. So when I first heard 
about this story, I was like, wait a minute. Um, is this connected oh. to this young lady, Nina Lee, submitting her work to Lena Waithe's company? And on, upon further review, it seems as if um, Nina Lee wrote this while in college in, at Spelman. And they even shot a couple of episodes of it. And um, her friend got like a backer for her to invest it. And the actual video that they shot went viral. And so Nina Lee signed some contracts. And being in college, you're just excited about your career, of course. As a screenwriter, and she must have signed over her rights to Girls Trip to a friend. Apparently. Wow. So this friend must have submitted it to Dove, and then it got in the hands of Lena Wave. Because, of course, Dove... That's crazy. A friend? Yeah, a friend. So I was, oh like, doing gosh. extra research trying to find out what exactly happened. So that seems in an interview with OK Player, um, Nina Lee mentioned that she made several mistakes in college. She created oh. this in 2017, signed some contracts and realized later on that she actually had signed her rights over to her work. Oh, my God. And so now this work has been given to Dove and Dove is, of course, going to have the most popular voice right now attach themselves to the story. Why not invite Lena Waithe on to write? She's like a very popular voice that gives your um, creative content more of a backing, more of a following. All of Lena Waithe's following will definitely watch. And so it's just a company strategic move financially and, you know, marketing wise. And so I just think, you know, I think I'm actually pretty proud of Nina Lee for even mentioning this because she could have saw it and just kind of like let it, you know, go. Because at this point, really, what can she do if she signed over her right? Mm -hmm. But she did mention it and she's written other things. So hopefully Lena Waits might um, take her on, take a project on you know, or Dove might do right by her. I think in this day and age, we need to do right by artists. If they've been, you know, scammed out of money or their rights are taken from their stuff haphazardly or immaturely or prematurely, then I think we need to sit down, talk with them and work something out. Like it's only fair and you should treat people how you want to be treated. You were once young, you everybody makes mistakes and so like hear this woman's voice and give her credit where credit is due if she wrote this and directed this and you are literally copying what she um you know her output and her creative genius then she deserves some recognition oh what what kills me is i'm so disappointed that this happened to her um, it was a mistake, but it was also like somebody preyed on her. Somebody preyed on her to snatch her mm -hmm. work away from her and snatch her coins. That's not fair. But what's more unfair is the fact that 
this happens all the time. You hear stories about this all the time, particularly in the entertainment industry, where creators um, and artists are duped out of, you know, what's owed to them. People sign crappy contracts. People sign away their rights to the things that they've created. Um, People get into partnerships Mm -hmm. that they had no idea they were getting into. And they're trying their best to do their due diligence. They're trying to read these contracts, but, you know, I guess they're written in ways that are really difficult. And sure, there, there's some people who are, you know, may just be signing just because they're excited and they just want to get over, you know, get on with it. But I'm also sure that there's people who are really, really trying their best, but they have, you know, they just don't know. And, um, and I echo right. what you said as well, as far as just being, glad that she spoke up Nina Lee spoke up because there's so many people this is also part of part of how the industry is able to continue to scam folks um once people get scammed they don't really talk about it too much they speak about it in very vague terms but they never say this person did this this person um preyed on me this person got my rights unfairly they don't really speak out so then that means mm-hmm. that people aren't aren't warned, you know, whether to, um, whether or not to work with those people again, or, you know, just, just told, you know, this is how it works. Be aware of even the people closest to you, even your friends can take your rights away and sell it to the highest bidder. And you have no idea. Um, so I hope that more and more people have the courage, Mm -hmm. even if there's nothing they can legally do. I hope more people have the courage to just speak up and say something and not, you know, because because when you don't say anything, then these people are able to continue to do what they do because they're still in the shadows. Yeah, I've been really scared to submit my work to these competitions and things for that very reason. Um, Lena, Lena Waits herself has a wonderful opportunity for um, screenwriters to submit their work, get feedback, all of this you know, programmatic things that screenwriters of color need to propel their career, right? But it's just really scary to let your work out there into the abyss and then not get anything back. And then, what, three years later, you see that it's being Mm -hmm. produced, fully cast, fully... uh you know, market it on and you're watching it and it's your baby. That has to be the most gut-wrenching feeling ever. And you sat down at the computer and you, this came from you, you birthed it and then you lose, or you lose control and not even reaping the benefits of it. That has got to like tear you, tear your soul out, like as an artist. So they always say, if you're a screenwriter, a screenwriter out there, or if you, you know, you're writing a book, anything like to get your stuff copywritten um, and make sure that you have all of that paperwork and, it, you know, take advantage of companies, especially because I know a lot of people are, are indie filmmakers and and independent writers and you don't have a whole lot of money. Just take advantage of, you know, companies like LegalZoom, these these companies that'll let you purchase legal packages from them so that you have some sort of 
backing from the legal system in case you do have to fight for your work. Um, that's very important. And I just want to just, um, you know, really send some positivity to Nina Lee. I hope that her other scripts get picked up and she's rewarded for her hard work and that this is just a bump in the road for her. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Anything? Did you see the Candyman trailer? Girl. (laughs) (laughs) I watched it one time. That's it. I'm not watching it no more. You know, so (laughs) I'm not a scary movie fan. I don't do scary movies, period. Mm -hmm. Um, However, Jordan Peele has gotten me, you know, kind of getting into his scary movies. I'm not doing scary movies, you know, across the board. I'm just doing Jordan Peele scary movies. So that's Mm -hmm. the only reason why I even watched the the trailer in the first place. This is a Jordan Peele produced film. He did not direct this. Um, A black woman directed it. Her name is Nia DaCosta. So we got to make sure that we give her her due. Yes. And Jordan Peele also wrote, he also wrote this with uh Wynn Rosenfield and um Nia DaCosta so they've collaborated on this film but I'm so excited that a black woman has taken this into her hands and directed it and the trailer is really good um shout out to Chicago and Cabrini Green (laughs) and like all of the nuances that are in it that, you know, mimic the original film, even Vanessa Williams being in the new film. It's it's just interesting. I'm I'm like you. I'm not really into horror films at all, but I am on the Jordan Peele bandwagon. So I'm gonna try to like muster <laughs> up all of the courage I can to go and see it in the movie theaters to support because this is major. This is a major move for him and his company. Have you seen the original? So I've seen, the, I've definitely seen the original. Um, and I don't want to see, like, I don't want to see it ever again. <laughs> ever again. Um, so... I I know exactly, I feel your pain. I feel <laughs> your pain. I think the original came out in 92. Yeah, yeah. And it was just a lot. And I was like kind of really upset that Candyman had to, you know, have ties to black people, you know, because you're so used to um, horror films being white, uh-huh. you know, and I didn't, I didn't like the, you know, to vilify the black man like that, but I'm really excited. I'm, I'm excited for Jordan Peele creating this lane um, that he's creating. It's beyond the ordinary thriller horror film category. He's really creating a lane of his own, and I'm excited about it. Creating his own subgenre. Yes. Yes. Well, you know, shout out to to those because, you know, I was also, even though I'm scared, there's a lot of people that are very excited. And so I've been checking on Facebook and Twitter and the people are ready. Uh So shout out to y'all who are (laughs) going to be in line 
ready to watch Candyman. More power to y'all. I'll be watching from the sidelines. <laughs> <laughs> yes, let's sell it out like we sold out Black Panther. Let's get those box office numbers up and support Nia DaCosta. Um, black women directing is a major thing. So I'm excited. Yes. On Young, Black, and Brave, we will feature up-and-coming Black female artists forging through the music game. Every film has a music score, and that music score, too, tells a story. Black women should also be at the center of scoring, directing, acting, writing, shooting, casting, and producing films. So, why not highlight our black queens who are standing on top of their thrones and busting through those glass ceilings? Today's artist is California-born, Brooklyn-bred Amari Simone. Amari has lived everywhere from New York, Chicago to London, and she uses her cultural environment and surroundings to guide her writing and the art she creates. Listen to her song, Keep It. Keep It by Amari Simone. Amari, girl, your voice is so melodious. I love it. Uh, Listen, listeners, we have got to support Amari's music. Her music is available on all streaming platforms. You can also follow her on Instagram at Amari Simone. That's A-M-A-R-E-S-Y-M-O-N-E. 
And remember to keep it cute and keep it moving. Today we are going to review the 2020 release, The Photograph, directed by Stella McGee and written by Stella McGee. So let's take take us through a synopsis, Portia. Okay, well, this uh, is a romantic drama, rom-drum, I'm going to start calling them. (laughs) (laughs) And this film stars Issa Rae and Lakeith Stanfield. Mm -hmm. Just if you've seen the trailers, you already know this is a beautiful couple already. They look amazing on the screen. Yeah. Um, And so they are playing these two single people that are kind of starting out, uh, you know, they're at the beginning of beginning stages of a new relationship, but the film goes back and forth in time. So in the present, we're seeing Issa Rae and Lakeith Stanfield um, characters who are Mae Morton and Michael Block. But it uh, also goes back to the past, to the 80s. And we mm-hmm. see the characters of Christina Ames, played by Shante Adams, and uh, Isaac Jefferson, played by Elon Noel. Is that how you say his name? Um, I don't know. <laughs> okay, we're going to call him Elon Noel. <laughs> yes. Um, and Elon, uh, you may recognize him from his role in Insecure. He plays Daniel. And uh, so handsome. Yes, very, very yeah. handsome. <laughs> and Shante Adams, who plays Christina, you may recognize her from. Uh, being in the biopic Roxanne, Roxanne. She played Roxanne mm-hmm. Shantae. Yep. And so it's, I thought it was very clever. So basically we opened the movie with Christina Ames in 1989, I believe. And um, it's this video recording of her talking and she's kind of speaking with regret about love and career, the balance of love and career. And the quote is, I wish I was as good at love as I am at working. I wish I didn't leave people behind so often. Mm-hmm. And then the movie opens up. So, um, and Cynthia helped me out if I'm, if I'm missing a couple of things, cause there's a lot of, like I said, there's a lot of back and forth in time, but anyway, so we cut back to present day and we see Michael Blackard, Lakeith's uh, character. He arrives at Isaac's home in Louisiana um, set to interview him about an oil spill because Isaac is an oil oil rig worker, um, right. oil spill along the Gulf Coast. And um, actually, this is Isaac as a as a grown man, as an older man in the 2000s. Um, and he is played by Rob Morgan. You may remember Rob Morgan for his most recent role um, in Just Mercy, his scene stealing role in Just Mercy. Uh, where he played the um, the inmate who was executed. Um, excellent, excellent actor. And so anyway, yeah. Michael comes to interview him about the oil spill, but he spots a photograph in his house and he sees a picture of the young Christina Ames, who happens to be a well-known photographer now. So Isaac says that he knew Christina before she moved to New York and got big. Um, and then we find out over the course of the film that Isaac and Christina were actually a couple. They didn't just know each other. They were heavily involved in the eighties 
Christina always had ambitions to become a photographer and live in New York, um, but Isaac preferred to stay down in Louisiana and he all he wanted was just to get married. That was his ambition, it seemed, in life. And she wanted, her ambition was more towards her career. Um, so that was the conflict that they had. And we get to see that. And then we go back to the present day and we see that Michael returns to New York City to now interview Christina's daughter, Mae Morton, played by Issa Rae. And I guess he goes to her job. It looks like it's an art gallery, right? Or a museum? Yes. Yes. It's a, it's a museum. Mm-hmm. So, um, so they're talking and then, you know, you can see that there's some sparks flying there. There's some chemistry and they decide to exchange numbers. In the meantime, May discovers photographs. She goes to um, a safe deposit box and in there she discovers photographs and two letters that were left by her mother because her mother passed away recently. And one letter is uh, addressed to her and another letter is for her father to read, I believe, after uh, May finishes reading her letter. Yeah. Um, let's see. A couple days pass and Michael is back at his job on the computer and he finds uh, an announcement for a film that is going to be screened at May's uh, uh, place of work. And so uh, Michael then turns to the intern that works there um, named Andy, asks him if he wants to go see a show. And really his ulterior motive, you could tell, is he wants to go back and see May. He wants an excuse to go see May. Yes. So then they go and May is, with her homegirl slash look like her coworker, Rachel. Mm-hmm. And uh, they watch the film separately. They watch the film. And then after the film, uh, Michael and May are able to link up and Rachel and Andy go off, you know, to the, to the bar just to kind of give them some alone time. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and it was a nice little exchange, you know, Andy is kind of like, you know, Hey, you know, what, who are you? What's up? And Rachel's just like, time out. How old are you? And he was like, you know, I'm, I'm 25. I'm I'm here. I'm 25. And Rachel's just like, I'm too old for you. And she just is right. just off the bat wants to dismiss him. But it's nice how, you know, their little storyline plays out, um, which we'll get to. Mm-hmm. So then Michael asked May out on a date. And then we, the next thing we see is that they're at a restaurant. So this is right after, presumably right after the event is over, they cut to a restaurant and they're just sitting and, and really chatting and getting to know each other. They're talking a lot about hip hop and who their favorite rappers are. Mm-hmm. And over the course of the conversation, Michael just kind of stops and he's like, you know, basically, can I kiss you? And then they share a very passionate kiss. And then I I think a couple days might might have passed since then. And then we see that there's this big storm that's forecasted to hit New York City. And um, Michael decides to go by May's gallery to uh, well, she, where she's trying to pack up some things um, before she goes to her apartment. So I guess Michael probably was planning on getting stuck with her somehow. Cause I'm trying to figure out like, why would you yeah. go over there in the middle of this yeah. storm? <laughs> but uh, yeah. So anyway, 
he's like, you know, I can help you. I can help you bring some stuff over to your house, blah, blah, blah. And so she's like, okay. And then they go over to her house and she has this amazing apartment. Huge, beautiful, well-furnished, lots of art. And all I could think of was, girl, how are you affording this? This is 2020. We're still post-recession. <laughs> I'm assuming y'all are in your 30s. How are you affording this? Whose house is this? Anyway. She got that six-figure job. That's why she can afford I it. Yes, I'm just saying. <laughs> so, yeah, so, you know, they're they're chilling and they're drinking wine and whiskey and, you know, it, it, it's a storm. It's a hurricane outside, but... They're feeling nice and mellow, and next thing you know, they decide to to take the conversation over to the bedroom, have a nice little love scene, and then after they're done, the power goes out. So then they have to evacuate, and uh, they decide to go over to Michael's brother's house, and um, mm-hmm. so they make it over there, and they meet Michael's brother and his wife. And his two girls. The girls. I love the girls. I love the little girls. They were so sweet. Yes, they were. Yes, they were. (laughs) And they were giving all the tea. They were just telling her everything. Yes. They thought her name was something else. They called her by the ex-girlfriend's name. I forgot her name. Mm-hmm. And then, and May was mm-hmm. like, "Oh, who's that?" And it was like, "Oh, well, you know, this they were together and blah blah blah." And I thought they were gonna get married. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> she just getting all this information, and it was a, a it was a funny little thing. One of the girls was just kind of like, "Oh," like I think she realized she might have said too much, and then it was time to go to bed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So then the girls went off to bed, and now it was grown up time. So. Michael's brother, Kyle, and his wife, Asia, were able to chat with them. And it was just, they were, they were talking. I mean, it was, it wasn't about much, but it was just a nice, uh, vibe that they were able to have, especially seeing Kyle and Asia together played by, um, I should say, uh, Lil Rel Howery and, uh, mm-hmm. Tayana Paris. And Lil Rel is, you know, mostly known for his comedic roles, and he's a stand-up comedian as well. Um, Tayana Paris is known for her roles in Dear White People, Chirac, The Mickey Howard Story, and she will soon be in WandaVision playing an adult Monica Rambeau, who that would probably be her biggest, biggest role, because um, this is Marvel. So this is she going to get some yeah. Marvel money now. Yeah. <laughs> I lo- I personally love Tayana Paris. I was so happy to see her on the screen. Yeah, it's beautiful, gorgeous. Yeah. Um, but I love the rapport between the two of them, and it was you know kind of like seeing this young, very very brand spanking new couple, you know, across from this very comfortable couple, been together for years, has a family. You know, it's almost like. Michael and May could mm-hmm. possibly see themselves into the future through Kyle and Asia. Yeah. Inspired. Yeah. They were like inspired, I think. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, so, yeah. So then, you know, of course, again, they're in the middle of hurricane, whatever. I don't even know the name of it. 
<laughs> Hurricane Sandy something. And so Michael and May spend the night. And in the middle of the night, uh, May wakes up and she continues to read her mother's letter. It's a long letter and she's been reading it for several days. Um, and while she's reading, we flash back to the 80s and we see um, we see the character of Christina leaving Louisiana without telling Isaac. She's been saying, you know, for a while that she wants to go to New York. She wants to be a photographer. She wants to get out of Louisiana. But she decided to just do it instead of kind of telling him. And then we see her arrive in New York. She's been there for about three months and uh, she lands a job as an assistant to a photographer. Then we see her come back to her apartment in New York City. She calls her best friend to give her the good news. And her friend uh, gives her devastating news, tells her she needs to come back home because her mother passed. And so yeah. then we cut to Christina back in Louisiana. She's sitting there at the funeral home with her friend. Um, you know, her mother is in the casket. It's a very, very sad scene. And um, and then her friend gives her even more bad news. She finds out that Isaac is now married. Even though uh, she's been gone for a short time, somehow Isaac decided to get back with mm -hmm. his ex-girlfriend. Mm -hmm. And she learns through her friend that, you know, Isaac was, he was upset. He didn't know what happened. He was kind of waiting for her to come back, but you never, you never called. You never said anything. You just left. Um, and so, you know, he, he moved on with his life. He decided to move on with his ex. Um, and so after, I guess the wake or the funeral for, for her mother, Christina and her friend drive by Isaac's boat, I guess. And there you see Isaac with his now wife. And I don't know about you. She looked like she was pregnant to me. The wife? Yeah. I I didn't even. Yeah, I don't know. It, I mean, that makes sense. Because she, you know, you'll get to it later. But yeah, that it, it does make sense. It makes sense that she would be pregnant. Yeah. And so, you know, and I was just like, this is the part that I got a little confused by. I could not figure out how much time had passed really because I thought maybe it uh -huh. had been just a few months because she was you know like I said she uh I think she told the photographer that she was interviewing with that she had only been in in town for three months and then she you know immediately came back home because her mom died so I'm thinking if this is a three-month span how this man get married and get this girl pregnant that fast Right, we would have to go back and look because I remember her friend saying the exact time and I feel like it was a year or something. Oh, okay. Because her friend was like, girl, you've been gone for. And I remember her saying exactly when, but I can't remember the the time either. But um, her friend even was saying like, yo, where you been? Like, mm -hmm. so she had to be gone for a long time. And the way in which she left without saying goodbye right. also was alarming. Right, right. Um, so, yeah, okay. So that would make more sense if there was more time that passed. Um, mm. So, okay, so we learned this about about uh, Isaac and Christina. Then we flash forward to present day. Um, 
now we're in the aftermath of the of the storm hitting New York. Michael and May decide to get up and go for a walk that morning. And they kind of chat and agree that they want to continue to get to know each other, continue to spend some time with each other. Because mind you, they just had a date like maybe a week earlier and then they had sex just the night before. So again, this is very, very new. (laughs) (laughs) They they just went for what they wanted. Yeah. Just went for what they wanted. That's right. No time like the present. And um, (laughs) (laughs) um, meanwhile, let's see. Oh, yeah. So then May eventually finishes reading the letter that her mother wrote and she learns the identity, the true identity of her father. Um, So up Mm -hmm. until this point, we know her father to be um, we know her father to be Lewis Morton, played by Courtney B. Vance, the great Courtney B. Vance. Yeah, the great, the great who's done everything. But possibly his biggest role to date is the being the husband of the great Angela Bassett. <laughs> yes. yes. Um, so, yeah. So, you know, she has a, a great relationship with her father, um, but we don't know the audience. She knows that that is not her, her birth father. That's her stepfather. She learns her mm-hmm. biological father through her mother's letter, uh, but it's not yet revealed. Meanwhile, we find out that Michael is, uh, you know, applying for jobs. He applied for a position at a um, uh, with Associated Press, I think, in London. And he was able to secure the job. They, he got the job offer and he decides to take it. May tries to tell him about her letter, but Michael avoids her phone call because he's not quite sure what to say about his job offer in London. Um, he's being advised by his brother who throughout the film is just kind of like giving him relationship advice and just kind of warning him not to like, basically not to play around. If you like a woman, then, you know, then be committed. But if you're not trying to commit, then, then, you know, don't play games. Don't, don't start stuff that you're not going to be able to, to see through. And it seems as though Michael is maybe like a serial monogamous, perhaps a romantic, yeah, uh, you know, at heart. Yeah. And that's cool when it's until it's not cool. And so, you know, <laughs> Kyle is kind of trying to tell him, you know, be careful. Yeah. Be careful. Be careful with your intentions. And so now, you know, having to go over to London throws a wrench in his plans because he's really, really feeling May. Then we flash back to the 80s again, and now we see Christina with a little girl. She's about four years old, and we realize that this is May as a child. They return to Louisiana to visit her mother's old home. I think Christina was selling her mother's home. Mm -hmm. And so they're back in town, and somehow Isaac catches wind of their visit, and he goes over and uh, sees them you know, chats with them very, very briefly. He invites them over to dinner, (laughs) volunteers his wife to cook dinner for them, which I thought was very interesting. (laughs) Um, 
But to Christina's credit, she was just like, you know what? No, thanks. <laughs> really? Thanks, but no yeah. thanks. Yeah. We got a we got a bus to catch. We got to go. And so he insists on taking them at least to the bus terminal so they can go back to New York. And it was so little said, but so much said between them. It was, you know, just the the energy between them. There was it, there was so much that they wanted to say that they did not. And May was right there in the middle, mm-hmm. um, literally right in the middle. So then we find out that Isaac is actually May's biological father. May comes home, not comes home, but May comes to Louisiana and uh, basically give Isaac the news that not only is she Christina's daughter, who he had met years prior when she was just a little girl. She is his daughter and Christina has passed away. And I was also shocked because she said her mother died a month earlier. So I'm like, wow, this is a lot happening in just the span of one month. Yeah. <laughs> the, <laughs> the time frames are yeah. a little bit, you know, uh, odd to me, a little off to me, just considering the emotional state that she's in, she doesn't seem like she's a woman who is mourning the loss of her mother, the the immediate loss of her mother. Well, you have to remember that her, yeah, their relationship though was always separate. Her mother did not really attach to her daughter either, just like she didn't attach to right her man in Louisiana. She did not attach to her daughter, so. She was used to being independent. I, even the story she told about going off to college, her mother didn't go with her right. to the airport. Like their relationship wasn't close. So she, even though um, she was mourning, the mourning was probably different than um, a woman who is right. really yeah. close to her mom. You know, it's just a different, different dynamic. Yeah, you're right. Mm-hmm. Okay, so then uh, May, like I said, she meets Isaac. She and she's there to also give him the letter, since she finds out that Isaac is her father. Now that letter has to go to her father. In the meantime, Michael is trying to wrap things up with his um, job that he's ending before he goes off to London, and uh, he returns to Louisiana to interview Isaac one more time uh, to finish up that story, and. Of course, just like a movie, Michael gets out of his car. He starts to walk up to the house and May opens the door because May's already in the house. And they're looking at each other like, whoa, how how do you even know this person? Where did you come from? Why are you here? Just shot. So May catches Michael up on, you know, her relationship to Isaac, why she's down there. And then she invites him out to uh, visit Christina's old house. They go there. She knocks on the door. Nobody answers. But then they see this little shack on the side of the house. And uh, that actually used to be Christina's old dark room, Mm -hmm. uh, which Isaac helped her put together. So they go inside and they just, you know, kind of check it out and... I uh, not sorry, not Isaac. Uh, Michael takes this as an opportunity to reconnect with May, and they share a passionate kiss inside of the dark room slash shack. 
and okay so again you know beautiful everything however i just needed a little bit more dust something on that check because it was at least 30 years of build up <laughs> nobody had been in there i'm like where are the spiders where's the snakes okay <laughs> how come there's no weeds growing inside that's the same for like when they were out in the rain one and two three times they were dry i kept saying to my friend i'm like they're dry they're not wet like they've been in a <laughs> like a downpour you know and they're right. dry like hollywood hollywood right <laughs> hollywood moment um so they share passionate kiss and then they basically they they're out for the day just hand in hand um, glad they're back together. It looks mm -hmm. like they drive to New Orleans for the day. Yes. Um, and it was a nice little moment because, um, so earlier in the film, you see Isaac and Christina, they had gone off, I guess, for the weekend to New Orleans with another couple. And mm -hmm. there's this uh, sequence where they walk inside of a house, a casa house, I think is what it was called or something. It, it was like a club or a bar, but it looked like a house. And you just see them walk up the stairs and you're hearing this music and there's people around. It was just a, it's just a nice vibe that they were in, in the eighties and then virtually recreated with Michael and May in present day. Uh -huh. They walk right into that same uh, building and they go up those same stairs and they're listening to present day music, but they're, you know, it's filled with people and it was just really nice symmetry there. Um, and they're just taking in the atmosphere. They're enjoying the music. They're enjoying each other. Um, and then Michael finally reveals that he's going to be leaving for London soon. He got a job mm -hmm. in London and, uh, and May is upset. So then they go off to speak in private and he's like, you know, we can make this work. And May's just like, no, that's, that's not going to work for me. I need something mm -hmm. more practical. I'm not trying to do long distance like that. You should have, you know, why didn't, why didn't you tell me sooner? You should have told me sooner. Yeah. And so that kind of leaves them on a sour note. May, I'm sorry, Michael leaves and then uh, May stays behind and, and, uh, with Isaac, um, and I think Isaac just kind of tries to give both of them really words of wisdom. I don't know if he's given them words of wisdom or if he's more so reflecting on his life. But anyway, just kind of talking about, um, you know, not letting love go and and really, um, you know, fighting for fighting for what you what you want. Mm -hmm. And so then we cut to several months later, I believe, several weeks or several months later. Uh, we see Michael now at his new job in London and he receives a package and it's from May and uh, he opens it and he sees that there are tickets to see Kendrick Lamar, who we learned earlier in the film is his favorite rapper. Kendrick Lamar is going to be playing in London, performing in London. And uh, when Michael arrives at the concert, who's there to greet him? May. Yay. <laughs> May surprises him and May just, you know, does this whole speech and she's like, you know, I'm sorry that I was apprehensive. I want to give this a shot. I really like you, blah, blah, blah. And then they share another passionate kiss and then they walk off to the concert hand in hand. The yes. end. 
the end. <laughs> yes. That was a major push pushback on Twitter. They felt like um, Twitter had a lot to say about the photograph. But one oh. critique was that it, the movie ended abruptly and they couldn't believe it ended like that. How did they want it to end? I don't know. I don't know. And and to that I say, write your own and maybe we will <laughs> go see it. <laughs> like, uh-huh. what? <laughs> write your own. Um. So what did you think about the film overall? Overall, I have to say I liked it a lot. Yeah. Yeah, I liked it. There there were some things about it that I was just kind of like, like I said before, you know, some of the um, back and forth got a little bit confusing only because I started losing track of the the duration of time. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. I really do enjoy these romantic dramas. I don't feel like you see them as much as you see romantic comedies, especially black romantic dramas aren't out here as much as black romantic uh, comedies. So I was just, you know, just on that alone, I was super um, excited and I felt like it met um, overall, it met my expectations. Yeah. Do you want me to just keep going (laughs) or do you want to do you want to chime in? Okay. Yeah, sure. Um, I I liked it a lot, and mainly because the romantic drama part wasn't romantic trauma. Like yes. I feel like we were watching these romantic dramas all the time, and the woman has to endure getting her ass beat or mm. being cussed at, pushed into a wall, cheated on, uh, find out that the man has other children that she didn't know. Like all of these traumatic experiences on screen did not exist in this film. People, the, the characters, they said what they wanted. They said what they need needed. Communication was clear. Um, and though like, you know, you might say, oh, well, they had sex really fast or that it that was their choice. Mm-hmm. You know, they both wanted to do it and they went after what they wanted and needed in the moment. And it was just nice to see that like black relationships do exist like that. Like you can talk to the person you like and you can show up. um at their events and support them and speak to them in a rational way and not traumatize them. And you can have baggage and say to your person, you like, I have baggage and I'm trying to overcome that. Like I wholeheartedly appreciated that level of maturity in their, um, their originally their companionship and then it built to a relationship i really did appreciate that yeah and i was just gonna add i appreciate that we got to see black people in reality it felt more real than a lot of these other films where it's more of a heightened reality um or like you said they're they're dealing with trauma shared trauma um you know, or just survival, trying to survive something like, like Queen and Slim. Good film, mm-hmm. but you know, there's, mm-hmm. there's the, there's the trauma element. They're bonding over trauma. Um, 
Right. You know, because one could say they probably would not even be together had it not been for, you know, that major plot point in the film. Um, right. So, yeah, I appreciated that these were these were people, you know, between Isaac and Christina and May and and Michael. They were just regular things that people go through. The conflict that they have, the barriers that they have to overcome are things that people go through every single day. It's completely relatable. Yes. I loved um, the cinematography, the coloring on it. They All of the Black people looked beautiful. They were dressed beautifully. I loved the soundtrack. And I know that was a pushback on Twitter. Like People were like, all that jazz music put me to sleep. Oh, come on. Um, no. <laughs> Whatever. Somebody said the jazz music was better than the storyline. I like Okay, I love the music. I complimented the storyline nicely. Um, I just I, overall, I I'm super proud of Stella McGee, and I just this is like, yes, we love Love Jones. Like nobody is ever going to take Love Jones away from our historical input into film, right? But this is new and this is refreshing and it's a different voice. And I feel like this is what we needed. We don't always need the mess that comes with um, the way screenwriters tell romance stories. This was nice and clean. Well, okay. Well, let's go back. Um, So you mentioned Love Jones. I definitely got Love Jones vibes from this film. And I think that that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. Um, uh-huh. Love Jones made such a, a mark on um, particularly black people of a certain age. I was like in my late teens um, when Love Jones came out and it, I mean, it, it became a standard in a way of film that I love yeah. to watch. And also, you know, just things that I, may have you know you watch you watch shows you watch films and you'd be a fool to say that you're not influenced by them and so of course you know I'm watching Nia Long and I'm watching Lorenz Tate and I'm wondering hmm I wonder if I'll ever have a relationship kind of like that or I wonder if I'll ever live a life like that they seem so cool they seem so beautiful so grown you know I wonder if I'll have a friend group like that I wonder if I'll ever get into poetry, you know, stuff like that. So it was just nice to just kind of see that lifestyle, see African-Americans in that light and kind of picture yourself in that way. Um, And I would imagine that even though some people on Twitter were kind of just whatever, um, I'm sure that there are (laughs) people who were probably my age when I first saw Love Jones who are watching the photograph and might be feeling the same Mm -hmm. way. You know, this is this is something that they're going to take with them into their adulthood. Um, you know, yeah. even, you know, with the even with the characters, I felt like there were parallels where in Love Jones, you had um, the character of Nina played by Nia Long. She was a photographer and Lorenz Tate mm-hmm. playing Darius, who was a poet versus right. in the photograph. You got May, who's a museum curator, I guess. Um, and then Michael is a writer. So you have, you know, two kind of very creative artistic people coming together, um, in both films. Um, I felt like the music, there were parallels between 
Love Jones and um, and the photograph. And Love Jones, there was a, the the soundtrack is just as um, unforgettable. unforgettable, exactly as the film itself. Yeah. Um, there was a lot of jazz and R and B in that, and for a lot of people, I would even speak for myself. Um, in a lot of ways, it became kind of like the gateway to jazz music. Although, of course, I had listened to jazz before, I really got into jazz after watching Love Jones and listening to the soundtrack on repeat. Um, and so, it was wonderful to hear so much jazz and R and B featured in this film. Um, the music was done by Robert Glasper, who was, you know, perfect choice. If this yeah. was the direction that they wanted to go yes, in, Robert Glasper, you know, did his thing. He put his thumbprint on it. He did. And uh, yeah, I, I, I liked it. I didn't mind um, that the music was so heavily featured. Um, it almost felt like it was its own character. I could, I caught that there was a theme there. There was this theme that kind of, you know, kept playing throughout the film, which I appreciated. Um, And it got me thinking, I wonder, and maybe it's just me, but do you feel like black film kind of has this relationship with music that you don't necessarily see in other films? I don't know. I just feel like a lot of times I'm, I'm more in tune to the music that is playing in black films Mm-hmm. and featured like not just playing in the background but like we're going to have a scene where we're seeing musicians play or we're going to you know have the music uh, playing in the in the car you know what i mean like there's there's moments where you know yeah. that the characters are listening to music that's because the music is a part of our dna mm-hmm. and i don't think our stories can exist without it um so that's why music is so important when you know the production crew gets together and decides who's going to be on the soundtrack like they're thinking of that storytelling aspect as well so you're right it does it plays a major part i would argue though that may and michael had um more maturity in dealing with their relationship mm. than darius and nina had and, okay. and I yeah I just I I just feel like you know when you're our age too dating it's just this lack of maturity in communicating if people just don't say exactly what they bring they're bringing to the table their their issues what they're what they like what they don't like and when you don't say that you find out later in the most dramatic ways. Mm-hmm. And it shouldn't have to be that. It shouldn't have to be like that. Like you should be openly communicating with the person you're trying to date. And if it's a waste of your time, then you should move on. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And I feel like this film, too, introduces what is happening in the world today as far as breaking generational curses. I felt like, um, the mom who would have been May's grandmother played by Marsha Stephanie Blake, her name was Violet, the character Violet, was a distant mother from Christina. Mm-hmm. She was not, she wanted to Christina to move out. She wasn't giving her any, you know, support. 
She was at an age. She was dating. She had to go. She told her she had to go. And so then, therefore, Christina became a mother like that to May. Right. And I feel like May was struggling. Like, I, she didn't want to be like her mother. Mm-hmm. And so her finally realizing that and ended up going to London, surprising um, Michael, was a step in breaking that dr- generational, you know, I, I call it a curse, but, you know, that generational mess that's happening in her family, uh-huh. she's breaking it. And I feel like a lot of millennials, if you want to call it, whatever you want to call it, <laughs> they're doing that. Like, they're confronting what's going on in their families head on. Mm. And so I appreciated that in the film. Yeah. And just to just to kind of piggyback on that, it felt like there was a theme here when it came to the treatment of black women in this film and black men in this, in this film that felt very refreshing to me. Um, so yeah. Mm-hmm. So like to your point, Violet, the character Violet, she had a, a very strained relationship with her daughter, Christina, who then went on and had a strained relationship with her daughter, May, you know, and Christina admitting that, you know, she felt like she, she wasn't good at love. She's better at working than she was at love. Her her identity was more around her profession rather than her relationships. May struggling to, you know, try to figure out what she wanted out of a relationship and, and uh, her feelings about Michael. Her friend Rachel, the co-worker who had met the uh, Andy, the intern at the um, at the after thing of the film. Um. So, yeah. So at first, Rachel rejected Andy because he was so young. We never quite knew how old Rachel was. Um, But, you know, (laughs) at first she starts off with just clear out rejection. And then, you know, you kind of realize that, you know, actually they, they chatted a bit. They talked. And then towards the end of the film, full on relationship, admitting that they're in an actual relationship and she. Uh, was resistant yep. to it, but she realized she liked she liked him and she liked who she was with him. She liked being happy with this man um, because she gave him a chance. Right. Um, and then even Asia, um, Tiana Paris's character, even though it was it was just a very small moment, but you know she had a joke. It, I guess the joke didn't really land <laughs> like she thought it was while while they were talking. The four of them. Um, during the storm, she was just joking about how she would divorce, um, she would divorce her husband watching some show. I don't know. It was a bad joke, but he just kind of was like, wait a minute, you're thinking about divorcing me? Like he, like, it was funny, but he kind of like took it a little, a a smidge serious because he just, you could tell he was just like, I don't even want to talk about that. I don't, I don't want to entertain that thought. But I appreciated that they positioned the black women as being able to struggle with their feelings about relationships um, and that they could voice that. And they they had the space to kind of, you know, to do that, because a lot of times you see women in films and either they, you know, they just know completely they this is the person for them this or they want to be in a relationship. They're dying to be in a relationship you know, at all costs. And here you have these women, these black women who are just like, wait a minute, I don't know. 
I don't know if I feel comfortable. I don't know, not just in romantic relationships, but with relationships, period, whether it's with my daughter, whether it's with my spouse, Mm -hmm. whether it's with this new man, I don't know. What I do know is my job. So, you know, and that's a, that's a a point of view that a lot of times men are allowed, are allowed to explore and women aren't as opposed to how the black men in this film were, were portrayed. They were allowed to lean into, you know, their relationships and show their desire for commitment from Michael, who seemed to be um, a little less afraid of commitment than, than May was. And he seemed to be very direct. And he was just like, you know, I like you. I want to kiss you right now. I want to be with you. I want to make mm-hmm. it work. Even though mm-hmm. we're, I'm going to London, we can still be together. You know, he was just very, uh, trying to be as clear as he could every step of the way. Isaac, you know, just being clear, persistent with his relationship with Christina saying he wants to just, all he cares about is marrying her. Um, even though she said she didn't want to marry him. He was just like, okay, well, I'll ask you again tomorrow. <laughs> he was, yeah, he right. just felt very strongly <laughs> about knowing right. that this was the woman for him. Even after all of these years, even, you know, as an older man, he still is very clear that she was the one. Um, Mace, uh, stepfather Lewis, you know, even talking about how when he first met Christina, she was pregnant with May and he didn't care because all he knew mm-hmm. was that he wanted to be with her. Mm-hmm. She was, she was, you know, the one for him. Um, Kyle, Lorel's character, I loved his character. He was just, yeah, mm-hmm. he was just very much comfortable in his skin, comfortable in his position. He had, he's a father, he's a husband. He, you could tell that he liked being a father. He liked being a husband. Um, he wasn't afraid of relationships. Yeah. He wasn't afraid to help his, his brother navigate his own relationship. Um, and then you have Andy, the intern, who, even though we didn't see much of him, he still was able to kind of carry that thread and being clear about, you know, I want to get to know you, Rachel. Yeah, I'm 25. So what? Yeah. Let's go. Let's try. Yeah. <laughs> Let's at least have a drink. He was yeah. the cutest. He was so cute. I like. I like the vulnerability of his character. I like that too. Um. So yeah, I I just appreciated that they allowed these black men to just kind of be in that space of vulnerability and to show a different side of masculinity, mm-hmm. um, and a different different type of strength, their strength in, in vulnerability, their strength in commitment, their strength in, in your relationships with people, their strength in honesty. Yeah. Um, so I really, really, really like that a lot. Yeah. The other thing I wanted to mention was just that the, the cinematography, the set design, the costuming, the hair, the makeup, it was a beautiful looking film. Gorgeous, gorgeous, gorgeous. Issa and yep. Lakeith look stunning. I Issa always looks great, but that hair, I was just. <laughs> I, so my hair is a 4B, 4C blend. I wear my hair natural on a regular basis. It's been a long time since mm-hmm. I've straightened my hair. 
but I was getting straight hair envy watching that movie. I was, I was just like, oh, wow. I wouldn't mind being able to whip my hair back and forth like Issa's doing right now. The only time I came out of it a little bit was when they had run out in Hurricane Sandy and they got to Kyle's house and I was just like, Uh now I know she had a hat on. However, her hair should have been a little bit drawn up, just a little bit. Uh, (laughs) And her, you know, she has little ponytail pieces. You could get yourself a little ponytail piece. You ain't got to yeah, but I need I need the texture to match. Yeah, I get it, I get it. But you can still <laughs> see her waves kicking in. Okay, I'm I'm definitely a four seed too. I was like that ponytail is holding on for dear life <laughs> <laughs> with the little waves in the side. Yeah. I'm like it. It still was. You know, you knew she's a natural hair sister but oh I, yeah 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 oh yeah yeah but yeah I, I always love Issa's uh hair every time she comes out with the new hairstyle I love mm-hmm. it and Lakeith I just I've never seen it for him for some reason I just kind of was just like oh you know he that's Lakeith Stanfield he's just <laughs> a little bit weird but this movie made me see him in a different light I was right. like wow he's a He's doing things right now. Yeah. And I like how he interviews. He's very relaxed, chill. You know, he just seems like a cool dude. Somebody that everybody can be friends with. So, yeah. So, I just wanted to make sure I put that out on the record. I just love the look of it. They look yeah. so beautiful. It's nice and brown. The colors and you know, even though I, so one of my criticisms is the size of that apartment. <laughs> Why? But even I in that criticism, it. even in that criticism, I got to hand it to the set design. Like it, it was, it looked great. And I just could not reconcile that this was somebody who, you know, possibly in their, I'm guessing in her thirties, mm-hmm. you know, she, I'm, I'm sure she has a well-paying job, but still that's a lot of, uh, square footage has a lot of stuff in that place with no explanation. I would have appreciated if they would have just said, oh, my mom bought this for me or, or my dad gave right, me all of my right. furniture. Just something to acknowledge. Like, I could not have bought all this by myself. Or, you know, if they would have even had us go to Michael's apartment just for that contrast to show, okay, well, this is how most people are probably living in New York. Well, we were in his apartment at one point. Were right? we? When, yeah, when he um got the call from her during the storm, he was in his apartment. I thought he was at work. Mm-mm. Uh, I'll have maybe, to go back and watch maybe. that. I don't know. Maybe. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe not. Maybe I dreamt that. <laughs> and then the other critique that I have, um, it's a it's a more general critique that I have just of a lot of films. 
I wish that this, I kind of wish that this film was set somewhere other than New York City. I appreciated the, um, the flashbacks when we followed Isaac and Christina in Louisiana. Um, cause that, it. you know, that's not something that we normally see, especially, um, felt like more rural Louisiana. It wasn't, it wasn't New Orleans. Um, right. which seems to be a more obvious place where a lot of people go if they set something in Louisiana because black people are everywhere. Um, but it seems like a lot of films just feature black folks in New York, LA, and more recently Atlanta. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one of the things that I loved about Love Jones was that it was set in Chicago. Mm-hmm. And how many films do we actually see black people in Chicago? We get to see the lifestyle of African-Americans in Chicago. Jason's Lyric, which was another kind of rom drum, although, you know, kind of had that that trauma element there. Um, but that was set in Houston, Texas. It was just nice to see something different. Um, yeah. And so I would love to see more films like this set somewhere else. Yeah, that is very true. That's very true. People love the NYC LA market. And now it's very popular to shoot in Atlanta. So you're absolutely right. Um, That didn't bother me so much. I think a criticism I do have is I, I am always a person who wants to know backstory. And I really wanted to know more about Violet's character and why she was treating her daughter like that. Like, mm. I I didn't understand. Like, we saw, like, a man come out who clearly was not her father, clearly mm-hmm. was not Christina's father. And I just wanted to know more about what was going on there because that that stuff trickles down. It, it's why Christina acted the way she did and why she felt like mm-hmm. she had to up and leave you know, um, and then why May was struggling with that. So all of that makes sense storyline wise. And I just mm-hmm. would love to have known more and more about Violet and why she was like that. Um, and I, um, I don't know. I, I am a person who wants to know how it ended beyond them going to the Kendrick concert. So. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I'm not usually a person like, oh, can you do a, a a sequel? I'm not. I usually don't do that. But I would just love to know what happened, you know, and how May becomes a mother to her child. Is she gonna be like Christina, or is she breaking that cycle between grandmother, and mom, and herself? I'm really mm. intrigued by the next, what happens next. Um, but I am inspired by Stella McGee's writing and just how clear and concise she has written romantic relationships because it doesn't have to be all that extra added crap that comes on screen. And I think her being a, a woman, a black woman writing this story, it it made it so much far better than the male-dominated rom-coms and rom- romantic dramas that we've seen. Yeah, yeah. You know, I I tried to think a little bit. You don't realize how many 
uh, black rom-coms or rom-drums um, that have been written by men and directed by men. Um, yeah. Even, you know, Love Jones, I love Love Jones, that's written directed by a man. Yep. And so, you know, and nothing wrong with men, but it's just, it's, it just, it's, it's interesting how few opportunities black women have um, and interesting is putting it lightly. Um, how, how few opportunities black women have to tell stories that involve us. Cause many of these movies involve a black man and a black woman together, you know, as, as a couple. So it's like, well, where's the black woman voice? So I, I, I'm loving this. I appreciate this. And I would love to see more, um, movies in this, in this genre coming from a black female voice. All right, let's take the photograph through the Dorsey Flowers test. Okay, so step one. So regardless of age, sexual orientation, trans identity, disability, religion, nationality, whether in live action or animated films, characters who count as black and female are characters who identify or are identified as female human beings and identify or are identified as black human beings um, and are not portrayed by non-black or non-female characters or actors, I mean. So, got it? So basically, black women who are played by black women is what we're saying. Yes. And that was evident. Yes. Yes. <laughs> that was evident. Yes. So that, that was the first step. Step two is it's an eight step process on step two. Okay. All right. So number one, are there at least two named black female characters in the film? Yes. Yes. At least two. There's like four by my count. Five. Seven if you count the kids. <laughs> oh, they were so precious. I love them. Yeah. Yes. Okay. And do they talk to each other? They do. They do talk to each other. We had a good friendship between May and Rachel. Um, Christina talked talked to her mother. It was it was just a lot of black female interaction in this film. I think out of all the films we've reviewed so far, this probably had the most. I would agree. I would agree. Now, we know they talk to each other. Do they talk to each other about something other than a man or a non-Black female character? <laughs> uh... I would say there, there's that, there, remember that's that phone call between uh, Christina and her friend when she had to tell her that her mother passed. Are you counting that? I'm counting it. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Why doesn't that count? The majority of the time they were talking about men. The majority of the time. And I, our argument is that this shouldn't, like, we talk about other things. That was something else. Like, even, you know, I was, you know, when I really was hoping, like, when they went over to Little Rail's house 
that she would have some alone time with Asia. I was about to say Tiana, but I know her character's name was Asia. And, like, just have some, like, girl talk. I would have loved to see that happen. But they were just talking about guys. (sighs) (laughs) So we're going to say no? I would say no. I would say it was too. I I can see if there was a balance. It wasn't a balance. Like that's just one conversation. Even when um, Christina called home and her to her friend, and uh, you know, you say like they talked about her mom dying. They talked about that and then went on to discuss the man. Like it just was never just a regular conversation without discussing the men in their lives. Ah, okay. All right. I mean, that's a that's a tough one, but you're right. Okay. So moving on to the fourth question: Is a black female character primary in this film? Yes. Absolutely. Yes, yes, yes. Two black female characters are primary. I would say this is this is a movie centered around May and Christina. Yep, intertwine the story, definitely. Right. Um, agency. Does a black female character have the ability to make her own choices? Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Christina made a lot of choices on her own. <laughs> yes, she did, and it was just nice to see the black women in this film all successful. They were all successful and. It was nice to see. Mm-hmm. Um, does a black female character live until the end of the film? Yeah. Yes. You see May about to go to the Kendrick Lamar concert. I know. And she doesn't even like Kendrick. That's the <laughs> thing. I don't know how she can't not like Kendrick. But that's that's love for you. You wanna you you gonna go do the activities with your boo, even if you like them, even if you don't like them, right? Mm-hmm. She did not like Kendrick, which I think was just idiotic, but okay. Yeah, yeah, that yeah. was the odd one to just be like, <laughs> I don't like him. Right, what? Okay, next, does a black female character appear as a stereotype? I don't think, I don't think any of the characters appeared as a stereotype okay and then the last one does a black female character have historical political or social relevance certainly social relevance yes i don't think historical or political but definitely social relevance yeah as you were saying you know the the um the agency of the black women, the ability that they were able to make their own choices, their independence, their success, ability to be successful, you know, and even with Christina, she was just, I loved her, her story. Um, even though she was definitely painted as a flawed character, I loved how determined she was to, um, make something of herself. She wanted to be a photographer. She wanted to live in New York City and she made that happen, period. 
Yeah. She wasn't going to be stopped in any way. And, you know, by the time she died, she was a well-known, successful photographer, which is not easy to do. Right. Especially, you know, we saw how she came up. She, you know, came from a um, presumably single parent household and not much. You know, she her her mom had that house and, and she had to leave that house pretty early in her life. So she really mm-hmm. had to make do with what she had. And uh, I think I think that says a lot. You know, and even, you know, they had the little sequence where she was interviewing for her job uh, as the assistant to the photographer. And then you see her really try to argue for herself. She fought for herself and she was just like, you know, I'm going to work harder than any of those debutantes out there who's going to leave as soon as they find a man, basically, which is which which (laughs) I wish that we had time to really kind of stay on that little piece because she said a lot in a very short amount of time. And then you cut to yeah. the line of like 10 women sitting there waiting for their interview and they're all white women. Right. And, right. you know, so for her to to be able to get the job over all of those white women who probably had connections, um, you know, I, I think there's a lot of social relevance there just with her character alone. I also like delving into the black family and the secrecy in black families mm. like her mother to keep that secret from her daughter and from her her daughter's father mm-hmm. even you went down there and you never you have her sitting in the car with her biological father and you don't tell him you don't tell Isaac like hey, look this is your child you know and it's just like it speaks to what's happening in black families everywhere. This this element of secrecy that we don't address. And I appreciate that, even if it was just for, you know, a small portion of the film. I agree. I agree. Okay, now let's also review the bonus points that this film is up for. We decided that we're going to add bonus points to any film that has a black woman director or a writer. One point each for a director and writer. And this film had a director. That's right. The same woman. Black woman. Mm -hmm. The same woman. Yes. So we're going to add two extra points for Stella McGee. Um, And so now let's go ahead and tabulate our totals. Yeah. By my count, including the bonus points, we have a score of nine. Yeah. So this more than passes. Eight points is passed. Six to seven points passed with minor corrections. Four to five points passed with major corrections. Zero to three is fail. This one did not fail. It passed and then some. Yes. Congratulations to the cast and crew of The Photograph. This is the second highest film. The highest film was um, Harriet, which got a 10. Perfect score. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So this, this is all right. Yeah. I'm happy about that because I really did like this 
film a lot. I remember, like, as soon as I saw it, I was texting you, like, wait, wait, wait. <laughs> we got we to gotta review this because it, it was so good, so refreshing. I left the theater happy. Yeah. You know? Yeah, it was me, just too. Really me too. Well, that was the Dorsey Flowers test reviewing the photograph which has broken the glass ceiling with a whopping score of nine so congratulations to the cast and crew of the photograph we would love to add your opinion to the conversation send us an email with your thoughts to young black and brave at gmail.com also, you can follow us on social media at Young Black and Brave. And if you're on Twitter, our Twitter handle is YBB Podcast. We will talk to you next week. In the meantime, stay brave. Peace.